Dear founder, as you know, there's no blueprint for entrepreneurship. You wear so many hats, you burn the midnight oil, you pour your heart and soul into everything that you do. But without a doubt, the journey is worth every single second that you put into it. I'm Lindsay Pinchuk, host of the Dear Founder podcast. I say this because I've lived it for over a decade. I started my first company with $500 in my pocket and a baby in my belly. I grew it and I sold it all. This podcast is my weekly letter to you. We'll talk all things starting, growing, nurturing, and in some cases, even selling a business. Together with some of my closest contacts, I'm here to help you find your own success, whatever that means to you. The ride as a founder is the ride of your life. So come on in and join me for another episode that will get you one step closer to reaching your own founder goals. Welcome back to another episode of Dear Founder. Before we get into today's conversation, I want to let you know about a little something I have going on. A lot of you have been DMing me and sending me messages asking me when my next small business workshop is going to take place. Well, good news. On April 25th, I'm kicking off a free masterclass, Social Media for Small Business. If you're looking to up your social media game when it comes to your business, you're absolutely going to want to join me. You'll walk away with a comprehensive idea of what to post, where, when, and how, and how to do it efficiently so that you can focus your time on growing your business. You're going to walk away from this seven-day course with actionable steps that you can put into place right then and there. Click the link in the show notes for more information and to sign up. It's free, so there's no excuse not to. Don't wait because the doors close soon. So I'm really excited for you to meet today's guest, Adrian Cheatham. You may recognize Chef Adrienne Cheatham from season 15 of Bravo's Top Chef, where she came in second place. But honestly, this moment in time was just a stop on her long list of accolades. Chef Adrienne Cheatham grew up working in restaurants her mother managed in Chicago. She studied journalism at Florida A&M University while catering on the side before pursuing her culinary career full time. After graduation, she worked in restaurant and hotel kitchens throughout Florida before moving to New York City. There, she worked for chefs across the city while attending the Institute of Culinary Education and later accepted a position at Les Bernardin, where she would become executive sous chef. Adrienne later joined Chef Marcus Samuelson as corporate chef de cuisine, opening Streetbird and Marcus's Bermuda before becoming executive chef at Red Rooster in Harlem. She is the chef founder of Sunday Best, a pop-up series that explores cultural connections through food and was recently a chef in residence at Blue Hill at Stone Barns, a two Michelin star restaurant on a sprawling farm outside of New York City. Adrienne's debut cookbook, which you'll hear a lot about in today's conversation, Sunday Best, is due out March 29th, 2022. Come on in and meet Chef Adrienne Cheatham. All right, so today on Dear Founder, we have Adrienne Cheatham. You might recognize her from season 15 of Bravo's Top Chef, but She has so much going on that you're going to, if you haven't seen her, you're going to start seeing her everywhere. Um, She has worked in many restaurants and she has a cookbook coming out, which is, I can't wait to see it, to read it. It comes out on March 29th, 2022. So it's probably out by the time you guys are are listening to this. Um, And she has an amazing story and a lot going on. And I am not doing you justice right now, which is why I'm going to let you share your awesome story with all of us and tell us how you got to where you got. Well, thanks so much for having me, Lindsay. It's great of to course. talk with you today. Like I said, I normally do interviews in the food space. So I love to talk to people about 
the food, but also the business side of what goes into food and creating these experiences. Um, that doesn't get a lot of attention when you're a chef. People just want to talk about food. So <laughs> thank you for a fun conversation I'm sure we'll have. Um, I grew up in restaurants. My mom worked front of house in restaurants in Chicago, and I was pretty much raised in a non-smoking section in the 80s to 90s in restaurants, and then gravitated towards that environment. I didn't feel comfortable having small talk. I, I didn't like socially awkward, long pauses in the kitchen and a restaurant. Everything is like short and to the point. It's not necessarily mean, but it's just very direct. And I was much more comfortable in that kind of environment where you have stuff to do and there's, you know, always a fire to be put out somewhere. Um, and when I was graduating from high school in Chicago, my father was pretty much like, no, you're not going to go to four-year culinary school. I fought for civil rights, so you didn't have to become like a burger flipper. And my mother, having been in the industry for so long, had a more practical response, but pretty much the same thing. She said that I've seen too many of my friends burn out and have nothing to fall back on. So go to college first, um, you know, study something that'll either contribute to you having a restaurant one day or hopefully take you away from it. So she wanted me to go into finance. So I started my first two years in college studying um, business finance, hated it. The only thing I liked about it was the research side. Other than that, not a fan. Um, so not surprising I <laughs> given what you're doing, but <laughs> yeah, I'm like, this is too much sitting down in one place. Like physically I need to be moving. Um, so I switched my journal, my major to journalism and finished college a couple years later, moved to, I was in college in Tallahassee, Florida, at Florida A&M, which is one of the historically black colleges in the country. And then I moved to Orlando to work in restaurants. I moved to the Gulf of Mexico area and the Panhandle to work, um, at a resort there in pastry for a while moved to New York for culinary school. Um, and while I was in culinary school, I did work study. So I worked for free for like eight, 10, 12 hours a day um, for different chefs around the city and at the school itself to work off the tuition. And then I bartended at night, um, got home at about four or 5 a.m., got up every day about eight, 9 a.m. to go back to culinary school to work for chefs. And then, you know, upon graduation, I had worked for so many chefs and I finally, I got referred to the kitchen at La Bernardin, which was, and still is like between, it goes between the number one and number two restaurant in New York. It's a three Michelin star restaurant that's been open since 86. Um, incredible, incredible restaurant. Eric Repair is the chef there. Um, and I wound up I thought I was going to be there for two years, move to California, get West Coast experience, and then open a restaurant. I wound up staying at La Bernadette for eight years, moved up to executive sous chef, um, worked on cookbooks and TV shows with Chef Prepare. Then I went to work for Marcus Samuelson because the only way I was going to be able to run a kitchen was if I went somewhere else. The two guys ahead of me at La Bernadette had been there for 28 years. They were not leaving. So if I wanted to manage the food cost and manage the labor costs, not just check those numbers, but actually be responsible for them, I had to go somewhere else. So I got that opportunity 
with Marcus Samuelson. And I went to be the corporate chef de cuisine of his restaurant group. Uh, we opened restaurants in here in Harlem. He already had Red Rooster open, but we were opening his fast casual concept. There were restaurants in the works for Bermuda, D.C. and London, as well as his licensed uh, restaurants in Norway and Sweden, of which he had about 12. So it was a lot of, you know, managing from afar. Um, boots on the ground as well. And yeah, after that, it was that was about two years of seven days a week uh, working for him because I was also doing traveling with him whenever he had cooking demos or food festivals, South Beach Food and Wine, you know, all these incredible events. I was like, okay, time to leave the restaurant and go to this. It's not a day off. It's a travel and work day. Um but it was it was an incredible experience. I learned so much about not just the food side, but the business side as well. Um, and then I went to do Top Chef. I got a phone call from them uh, right after I left Marcus, actually, and then uh, competed on that season, came in second, and immediately started my pop-up series, which I had already planned on doing, but you have to take two months to go away to film. So I started the pop-up series when I got back um, and turned that into like a roving dinner party, essentially, in Harlem. We've done events in other cities. I mean, I'm very lucky. They've always sold out in like 24 hours. Um, and then, yeah, turned that into um, some media appearances and a cookbook that I have coming out this spring. I didn't interrupt because you had there you have so much and I think one of the things that I I take away from what you just shared in your story is is a keyword and that is hustle. And you know, I think it's so easy for people especially nowadays to look at social media and to kind of just see the now and to see what you're doing and how amazing things are and you have this book coming out and you are on Top Chef and you know all the kind of glitz and glamour things, right? But why I didn't interrupt and why I really wanted you to start from the beginning is because this didn't happen overnight. Right. And you have hustled to get to where you are today and all deserving of everything that you have today. But, you know, it's so easy to look and to think this, that things happen overnight or you went on top, top shop and, you know, and everything is roses and unicorns, but you worked really freaking <laughs> hard to get to where you are. Oh Yeah. Yeah, it's that's that's the part of it that like a lot of people underestimate um, is that even now, like a lot of chefs are doing more media. Um, I mean, it started changing about 15, 20 years ago where chefs are more in front of the camera instead of just being in the kitchen, which is great. You know, it frees up. It gives you some time to like think and develop recipes and get inspiration to bring back to your cuisine that you're doing. But at the same time, it's a completely different world. And people are like, oh, I want to become a chef so I can do television shows. One of the main things that I get asked when Food Network or Epicurious or another media outlet wants to bring you on as a host or bring you on as a judge is, do you have a background? Not like, did you just start cooking? Do you cook from home? And there are people who gain large social media followings. Um, and that's incredible. Don't get me wrong. 
there is definitely a place in media for all types of, of experience levels. But the shows that I've done, they're like, we want you because you have 16 years of experience in Michelin-starred restaurants, in fine dining, in casual dining, but high-volume, well-known restaurants. So that really helps set you apart, too. Like, don't underestimate having a solid resume and putting in the work, you know, while also growing your social media. You know, even if you're just volunteering at a restaurant twice a month just to kind of learn some stuff, it'll open up a whole new world. Such good advice. I want you to talk about your pop-up Sunday's best. And I, you know, this is obviously your baby. This is what you founded. And you, you said something that you said the events sell out in 24 hours. And I think that that is a huge feather in any business owner's cap to be able to say that. So congratulations, but I'd love for you to share a little bit about how you started this and why you started this because it's not just a pop-up that you sell tickets for. And, and I, there's a why behind it. Yeah. It's, um, I really noticed, especially in fine dining, I noticed that the respect for so many other cultures and their cuisines is there, except (laughs) the main one that you never, or I never was seeing then. Now there are a lot of chefs who have dug into, to this, but the only real American cuisine is Southern food from the building of agricultural systems in this country to the building of foodways in this country. Even Alice Waters and Thomas Keller, all these West Coast chefs acknowledge it before East Coast, but they've said for years that the only true American cuisine is Southern food created by Black people, essentially, um, because African-Americans were the ones working in the fields and working in the kitchens. But influence from all these other immigrant groups that came melded into what we know as Southern cuisine. So there's Italian, there's French, there's German, Irish, um, Southeast Asian, there's, you know, Indian, Chinese, there's so many different influences that have melded into what we know as Southern cuisine. It's not just the greatest hits of fried chicken and collard greens and cornbread. Um, There's so much nuance and it's like hyper local. So it's kind of like going through regions of Italy is like what the cuisine in the regions of the South, it's so different from Texas to the Carolinas. Um, So I really didn't see any chefs really putting any respect on Southern cuisine. They're like, oh, it's just humble and homey. I'm like, well, yes, so was French cooking before somebody started growing it into what we know is like haute cuisine and fine dining. And like, so, you know, if people can make three Michelin star Japanese, Korean, Italian, like, why can't we do that? Why can't we grow and evolve and, you know, keep, keep the conversation going? I'm, and I'm from Chicago. My dad is from Mississippi. So I grew up spending summer breaks there, but I just didn't see any respect for it. And even when I entered cooking, I was like, no, I'm not going to work in a Southern restaurant or soul food. You know, it's, it doesn't get any respect in terms of like what you're doing or the cuisine itself. Everybody wants to eat it on their day off. All the chefs would be like, hey, Adrian, what uh, restaurants in Harlem should I go to or Brooklyn? I'm like, okay, I can give you, you know, some amazing places, but nobody was allowing it to grow. It's like, you just have to cook it the way your grandmother made it. But, you know, it's like, well, your grandmother didn't make 
you know, this dish that way. She made it homey in a stew, like, and, you know, why can't we do that with American cuisine? Why did you choose to do this through a pop-up series versus just, versus just opening a restaurant? So a lot of that is startup capital. Mm-hmm. In New York, it takes a lot of fucking money to open a restaurant, even a thank small you for one. Be, thank you for saying that. Thank you for being honest about it, because that's what I want people to hear. And I started the pop-up series first so that I could have a better pitch deck to go to investors with. And I thought the pop-up would be a good proof of concept. But even before starting the pop-up, I had been pitching investors. Everybody I met with was like, hey, I'm also a partner in this restaurant group. I would love to have you come and work for them as a chef in a restaurant. I'm like, no, I don't want to operate somebody else's restaurant. I've done that for 12, 14 years. You wanted your own thing. Yeah. And I wasn't really... Like my husband started his company. He's like, people will tell you no, no, no. And you just have to keep going until you get that yes that matters. I didn't have the patience for that. I was like, I need to start cooking. I need to start getting this out there. So I started the pop-up series um, to do that. And I knew that once Top Chef aired, I would have you know people interested in the food and interested in this conversation because more than anything, it really opens up to show people how much we have in common. Like you might be of Irish descent or Scandinavian descent in the Midwest, but your foodways actually have so much in common with African-American foodways or this other group of the South. Um, So it was really a way to show people what we all have in common. Today's episode is brought to you by Hivecast, an amazing agency providing high-quality podcast production made simple and affordable. I hit the jackpot when I came across Hivecast. As I pieced together services from contractors all over the web initially to help me with my podcast, Hivecast was everything that I needed all in one place. For just $500 per month, they not only produce and edit four episodes, but they also create the marketing assets. Emma, my account manager, is amazing, making sure that I'm on task and that we can schedule episodes regularly and by my deadlines. Honestly, the time saved working with Hivecast is worth at least triple what I'm paying. Their sister company, Fireside, offers other marketing services for small businesses, including social media management, Facebook and Instagram ads, search engine marketing, and so much more. Again, all at a rate palatable by a small business owner. The best part, there's no contract. You can purchase their services as needed on a monthly basis. Use the code FOUNDHER and save 50% off your first month of services. Give them a try. The decision to outsource this part of my business has surely saved me a ton in the long run, and it was the best decision I've made for my business. Do you feel like the stars aligned with timing a top chef and because you said you had this kind of planned out, but then you had to leave for two months to go tape Top Chef. Was there a, was there like a karma, you know, that like the stars aligned and here you are, you were on the show and then you were <laughs> able to launch your business with, you are national television. Yeah, it definitely helped. You know, it's, it's one thing to plan and I was going to start the pop-up anyway. But when I got the phone call about um, interviewing for Top Chef, I was like, you know what? This would only help. Like, I had never watched the show because I'm always at work when it comes on. So my sister loved it. She was like, oh, my God, you have to do it. 
anything that you want to do in the future, that will be a huge, it's essentially like getting national media coverage um, before you have a restaurant or, um, or something to like pitch people like a hook to bring media in. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. Um, had never seen the show before, <laughs> went in completely blind. Um, but it wound up being such a great experience. So I kind of timed when I would start the pop-up series with when the show was going to complete. Because I knew I made it to the finale. I also knew I didn't win. But I knew I made it to the actual finale. So out of 16 chefs, it comes down to two people. And I knew that I was one of those people. I cooked the food that I was interested in conveying and did some really cool shit. And, you know, and you were also on the show it. the entire time and built a yes. loyal following and had people rooting for you. I mean, you know, when you watch these shows, you you do find an affinity to one or, you know, you, you like you were, you're like rooting for people. And there you are in the end. And there were people rooting for you and loving you and, you know, wanting you to win. You were there the whole time, which is from a press perspective. (laughs) (laughs) It was funny. Like I never, I was on the bottom for so many challenges. It felt like I was on the bottom and like every challenge in the beginning, because I wasn't cooking my food. I was just kind of like, I don't know what I'm doing here. Like I've, you know, I, I know how to cook. I've been in restaurants my whole life, but like when somebody's telling you meat and potatoes challenge for 200 tasting, you know, for an event go, I'm like, shit, what am I going to do? I didn't have a restaurant where I was cooking food from my point of view already. So I started like recreating stuff that I had done in restaurants, just throwing something together, overthinking it. And you know, people were rooting for me because they're like, you have a great resume, but like, get your shit together. So (laughs) by the end of it, um, I got my shit together and it was, yeah, it was great. Like so many people were like, oh, we want you to do well, but you keep winding up on the bottom. But I mean, you ended up on the top. You said something that I actually wrote down before you said it. And that is, you know, how, how was it different running your own business versus working in someone else's kitchen, because there are a lot of other things that come along with just the cooking when you have your own business. Yeah. It's, it's almost refreshing in a way to work for somebody else sometimes um, because you have less responsibility. You can just show up. Yeah. You can show up, cook your food when you're in charge. um, Like when I was exec chef at red rooster, in Harlem, you know, it was if somebody calls out or no shows or the lights go out, um, you know, the electricity in the building or something happens, like anything that happens, a delivery is shorted, the walk-in coolers go down, the computer system is on the fritz and it's inventory day, like anything that goes wrong, everybody's coming to you. And it's both a good feeling but it can also be very stressful um, because you're not as focused on the food at that point. But that's why you have to have a team that you trust. You have to have a general manager to work with the front of the house and any issues. You have to have defined responsibilities. And then there can be some crossover. Like if you're really good at this, but that's technically in the GM's purview, collaborate with them. I'm going to let you guys handle it. Like my thing was always come to me with solutions. Don't just come to me and tell me what the problem is. 
tell me the problem and tell me at least two solutions and then we can troubleshoot. Um, and different though, than like, than a, a corporate business or a company, you know, d- very different from what, from what other people are doing in a restaurant, the solution needs to be immediate. This is not something yes. that, you know, oftentimes people are coming to you with a problem that's now and it's affecting customers. And so thus it affects their experience. And so it needs to be something that's immediate and take, it's not like, oh, well, we can talk about that later. I mean, it really is a fast paced environment. It's different than a corporate environment. Yeah. Everything has to be solved in the moment. Like if if a table is running late for a reservation, that's going to push the next reservations back and back. So you know, the, the manager's like, do we hold the table for more than 20, 30 minutes? Cause it's like a, you know, a VIP table or should we let it, you know, like, do we rush them with the check at the end? Like, you know, things like that. Or if, a, if the food is taking a while to get to a table, um, you need to send them something in the meantime to keep them happy because you don't want the restaurant operations to prevent somebody from having this like dining experience. That's why we call it the theater of dining because you come in with a certain expectation. It's almost like watching a movie where it allows you for a few moments to kind of melt away from your day. And you're in an environment where you're not responsible for the cooking and cleaning. You're not responsible for all that stuff. You just get to sit and enjoy it. And that's what we want to provide. So when anything goes wrong, it has to be solved right then. Like right. you you have to make fast decisions and you need good people around you to make sure that those decisions will ultimately be the right ones. Which, you know, I mean, that's applicable to any business, right? So you need to be surrounded by a good team. Talk about Sunday Best now and where the business is now. So Sunday Best went on hiatus during COVID. Um, I had found pretty much a full-time home for it, a space in Harlem. Um, to So I wasn't doing it at different restaurants. Um, but during COVID, obviously, the world shut down. So did a pop-up series. So luckily, I have a job. So I'm not dependent on the money from the pop-up series. Like I actually have a job that allows me to fund the pop-up series and fund a lot of the other stuff that I'm doing. Um, so I'm incredibly fortunate to, to cook for a private client a few days a week. Good salary keeps me able to run the pop-ups and just have money to put into it when I need to. And the, um, the pop-ups are now getting started again. Good. So... Sorry, let me random telemarketers. Um, (laughs) So now that COVID's in a better place, um, I'm able to restart the pop-up series. Um, There are some restaurant spaces in Harlem that I'm looking at, although I'm not sure if I want to do a brick and mortar because I really do like the freedom of being able to plan. It's so fun. I mean, pop-ups are fun because it's like, it's a good experience, you know, even for like, people who make reservations and go out to eat all the time. It's like this experience of something that you know, you're not going to be able to do just any given Tuesday, Wednesday, or Saturday night. It's kind of like, Oh, it just puts you in like a little bit of an extra special mood. Which is awesome. And so talk about your cookbook. I mean, this is the big thing that you have going on right now. And I, my question for you is, were you always going to do a cookbook or did the last two years kind of put that more on the map for you? Because I think a lot of people and a lot of people I talk to here on the podcast have obviously made 
pivots, changes, you know, gone in different directions because of the last two years. And often the people here have done really incredible fucking things from the last <laughs> two years because we were all like locked in our houses. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. I never planned in, you know, I never essentially thought I would do my own cookbook. I worked for big name chefs who are all over media, incredibly well-represented on the media side, celebrities um, lauded the world over. And I was really happy being operational. Like operations is where I kicked ass and I loved it. I loved being the person behind the scenes of this venerated person who gets all these worldwide accolades, being the person who handles operations, puts out fires, and holds the standard that is known the world around. I was so happy to be that person. So I really loved the operations, managing the costs, keeping the doors open, keeping the staff happy. Um, that I really loved that. And I was happy doing that for as long as I could. And then I just got that opportunity to kind of step in front of the camera and it really changed my perspective because I also didn't see a lot of women, especially Black women, represented in the food world, especially fine dining. Um, so that was a big part of it. And when I got the opportunity to do the cookbook, I was like, oh, shit. Okay. We signed the contract right before COVID started. Oh, God. <laughs> so literally that February, we signed the contract. The world blew up. And in a way, it was great because I was able to like hunker down and focus on the cookbook during that two-year period. Just like cookbooks can take anywhere between six months and five years, depending on how in-depth and all that. And mine has a bit of research in it. So it was going to be about a two, two and a half year project. And we got so much done. Like we had the manuscript submitted in a year and a half with recipes tested. Um, and then it was just onto photography and finishing that. Tell us a little bit about the book and what's in it and what's, what, what are we going to see when we open up your cookbook? How is it different from other cookbooks out there? So my cookbook is a little more personal than I ever intended. I thought I would do one of those chefy coffee table books. Um, this is the kind of book that you're going to have splattered with food and oil and all other condiments um, because you'll use it so much. It's definitely the kind of cookbook that has a chapter on how to reuse leftovers, um, how to remix the dinner plate with a protein, starch, and veg. Um, it's very much based on how my mother cooked. And she was from Chicago. Her family is German, Irish, English, and my dad is from Mississippi. So she was kind of recreating Southern food with Northern ingredients, but she also worked in restaurants. So she would pull in Thai basil here or stuffed shells. I mean, it was the eighties. So stuffed shells were like the jam. Um, <laughs> So, you know, all this who didn't stuff love a very... good stuffed shell. Come on. <laughs> right. Thank you. So it's it's homey in a lot of ways. It's definitely stuff that you can cook on a Tuesday night. Um, and it just kind of lets people know that cooking shouldn't be intimidating. Grab a rotisserie chicken from the grocery store, put a cool spice mix on it, pop it under the broiler, and then focus your energy on making a side dish like a veggie dish. And then just pair it with your chicken. But it's kind of taking out the intimidation and letting people know little things that they can do 
to make it more restaurant quality, like turn your oven heat up, season along the way while you're cooking instead of just at the end. Like little pointers like that are sprinkled throughout the book. Do you feel like, do you feel, you you made a comment about how on Top Chef, when you were coming at the bottom, you were coming in at the bottom of the challenges that people are like, get your shit together, you know? Do you feel like Top Chef helped you to pull your personal brand together? Because when I, when I'm talking to you now and we're having this conversation, it's not just like, you know, Adrian Cheatham, co-founder, founder, chef or whatever, you know, it's not, you have so many different facets of you. And when I look at what you are the founder of, like you are the founder of yourself, you have made so many different opportunities for yourself. It's really amazing. I love that. That's I, I'm going to use that all the time now. <laughs> Good, use it. The um, it, I mean, it but do you does feel like Top Chef, like maybe helped put a stake in the ground for you in that regard? Was that like a pivotal does, moment? Yeah, it definitely did because when you're under a microscope and you have to define what your focus is, it's not like you know some restaurants where you'll see like pasta, Asian food on the menu. You know, where you're, one of those restaurants where you see like. 20 different types of cuisine on the same menu. On Top Chef, you have to define what your perspective is and you have to execute on that. So if you come there with a strong Italian cooking background or pasta background, that's what they're expecting from you. And that's what you have to execute really, really well. When I got there, I didn't necessarily have my own perspective or food that I was doing. I hadn't started the pop-up series yet. So it took a little while and there was a challenge that my mother came actually, and it was one that I won um, when she was there. And and when she was there, she was just kind of like, you have this opportunity to cook the food that you're interested in. Stop cooking fucking French fine dining. Stop cooking somebody else's food. Cook your food. And after that, I was like, you're right. Like, you know, but it's kind of that insecurity about, is this a good idea? You know, if you're starting a company, you're like, is this a viable business? You know, is right. it a good idea? But is it, can it make money? Can it turn a profit? My expectation when I asked you about the cookbook was that it was going to be a direct reflection of your pop-up. And it, it doesn't seem like, I mean, it seems very, no. and it seems like, but, but that's why I'm so glad I asked you that question because again, this is just one of the other aspects of you as a chef, your brand and how you do things. And I, I mean, I, it's amazing to be useful in the kitchen, especially coming from someone who is like, you know, I I'm balancing a thousand different things to know how to repurpose a meal. That's the shit I want to know. You know, I don't <laughs> need to know how to cook my kids French fine dining, like right. even eat it. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, I can save the like direct translations of Sunday best dishes for another time. Like I really wanted, my sister has two kids. And I really wanted something that she could use um, and give her. She's like, I just don't know how to make my food taste like it comes from a restaurant. So I want to give her things that she can do after work, cooking for two kids and herself and her husband, but also just kind of like little tweaks that she can do that won't throw off her whole evening just to make it that much more special. And that's what Sunday best is. It's like in the South when they tell you, hey, we're going to go to the department store. So put on your, your nice clothes so you look nice when you go out. That's what Sunday Best is. It's just putting on a little something extra to make it 
that much more special. It's like just showing yourself a little bit more love and the people around you, but just doing little things instead of putting on like, you know, a little frock with a, you know, put on just yeah. a little bit of a nicer dress. That's I it. love it. You know, little things. I love it. So what would you tell someone who has a business idea or who is just starting out? What, what would be three things, actionable things that you have learned from these many years of experience and hustle? And now you have, you have multiple businesses when it, when it comes down to it. I mean, you have your cookbook, you have your pop-up, you have a job. I mean, you have a lot of things going on. So what would you tell someone? I would tell people to don't waste time overthinking. Put something in action, whether it's proof of concept, like I did finally starting the pop-up series to, to be able to get investors interested and show them something tangible to invest in. Um, put something in action. Um, even before that is hone in your idea. Define what it is. Think through the operations of it. Think through all different iterations of it. Then do proof of concept and then don't back down. You know, there are, when you're first starting something, it's always like, oh my God, is this a good idea? Is it going to do well? There's always going to be self-doubt, especially when you're starting something new, um, but believe in it because you've already taken it that far. If you put something in action, you've already invested time and energy and money into it prove it out, work so diligently like you would work for somebody else, work that same way for yourself and make sure that if it doesn't and you, if it doesn't do well and you need to pivot and change course, at least make sure that you've done everything that you can to prove out your original business plan. And then you can see it grow. You can see it take on a life of its own to the point that you need to bring on a team and help to manage it. But if you, if you let that self-doubt kind of, you know, interrupt your operations or take over, then you won't be as focused on making it grow. I love it. I love it all. And I have one more question for you. Your cookbook obviously comes out at the end of March of 2022. But I know after talking to you here that I'm sure there is a something on the horizon. So what's next? What's after? There are a couple of shows in the works, so hopefully that will be the next things that we start to see. Um, but the pop-up series, um, getting that rolling again, uh, have a contract with a, a few incredible brands to take this around the country. Um, so Sunday Best will be popping up in many more places than we did pre-COVID. And yeah, check out you know different shows and things coming up. What? Well, Adrian Cheatham, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your story. This has been such an awesome conversation and I'm I'm so happy for you and proud of you. Congratulations on all of your success. Thank you so much. Because it's to to hear the story and to see what you're doing and to hear what's coming next, it's really amazing. So I hope you're proud of yourself too, because you should be. It's amazing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Of course. I loved, loved, loved this conversation with Adrian, and I hope that you did too. Please make sure you check out Adrian's new book, Out Now, Sunday Best. Make sure you grab yourself a copy. But for now, take out your pen and paper for some of her amazing takeaways. 
Number one, success doesn't happen overnight. People underestimate that. People actually want you to have a background, not just an overnight success. Number two, startup capital can be a hindrance in starting a business, but having a pop-up created a proof of concept for investors. Number three, in the restaurant business, in some ways it's easier to work for someone else. You have less responsibility. When you're in charge, it's up to you to fix everything. Anything that goes wrong, everyone's coming to you. Number four, you have to have a team that you trust with defined responsibilities. You want people to come to you with solutions, not just problems, but how to solve the problem so that you can troubleshoot. Number five, seize your opportunities. Use what comes your way to launch your personal brand. Number six, don't waste time overthinking. Number seven, put something into action, either a proof of concept, but even before that, define your, define your idea, think through the operations and the iterations of it. Number eight, don't back down. When you're, at, when you're first starting, there is always self-doubt, but believe in it because you've already taken it that far. Number nine, work so diligently like you would for someone else, but for yourself. I cannot thank you enough for being here and for joining us on today's episode of Dear Founder. Make sure you follow at Lindsay Pinchuk and at Dear Founder on Instagram. You can also go to lindsaypinchuk.com slash freebie to download some of my tips, tools, and resources for starting your own business and for managing your social media. We have some amazing, amazing, amazing guests coming up. Please make sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or follow us wherever you listen so that you never miss an episode. If you know someone who wants to start their own business or who started a business or who has an amazing idea, please text them this episode or post it in your Instagram. Tag me. I'll make sure to reshare them to say thank you. I'll be back next week with another episode of Dear Founder.